1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Hear now God's word. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I want to preface the sermon today with a few thoughts. As a pastor, uh, a pastor is to primarily minister, serve the Word of God and the sacraments to his flock and to pray for them. The pastor's ministry of the Word takes several forms, including both public and private ministries. At times, it's a straight-up teaching of the content of the Bible with a focus on the exposition of the text at hand. This is an important and critical part of fulfilling Paul's admonition to Timothy to guard the deposit. We teach doctrine. We teach, again, the, the content of particular verses and, and all, the, all that the Bible has. So there's just the teaching of the Bible. That is a primary thing we should do. Another aspect of the ministry of the Word is to imitate the prophets and the apostles and what they were doing when they were addressing their constituent groups. This involves looking at the circumstances of the world, the the local situation and, and even the individuals, and making both broad and particular applications of God's Word. For example, what does the Bible have to say about our current national, and cultural circumstances? What are we to think about the politics of our day? And what is the current wind of doctrine that demands our submission and enables us to be woke? What are, what are those, what's going on out here? And how are we to take a look at this? First Chronicles 12.32 tells us, that the sons of Issachar were known for one thing that was very important, that is, that they understood the times they lived in and they knew what to do. The ancient world and the modern world have in common the fact that they were both and both are polytheistic. That is, they have many gods. And as followers of Jesus Christ and of the one true and living God, we have been warned over and over through Scripture not to follow those other gods which are false idols. As the famous, I'll call him a prophet, Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, man has forgotten God, and that is why all this has happened. Moreover, the Bible offers this general admonition In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
But solid food belongs to those who are of full age or mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It's not as easy as most people think to know the difference between good and evil. This is why we have all, much of the conflict that we see before us in our world and in our culture. People claiming this is good or this is evil and claiming the, actually the opposite. Why is, there, why is this so? And we want to address that today. In our text today, Peter reminds us of, number one, who we are in Christ. That is our starting point. That's one of the reasons we've assembled here today on the Lord's Day, and we'll be back again next Lord's Day, is to come back to center point to remember what is the most important thing. We are creatures of God. We were made to worship Him and to live before Him and to serve Him. And then we go out the doors and we make every effort by His grace and with His Spirit and with His Word to do that. And we come back and we start over again next week. And we do that every week for our whole lives. Why? Because we get sidetracked very easily. What does he say here in this text? Number one, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. That's the starting point of being a Christian. A purified soul. We've been washed with the Word and by the Spirit. We are new people. We have a new orientation. We think about things differently. In fact, everything has become new. He says you have a sincere love of the brethren. You love one another fervently with a pure heart. Is that a description of you? Do you love everybody here that way? Do you look forward to it? Or is it something you just kind of check off your list? I went to church and now that's over and I can get back to doing what I really want to do. He said, no. Peter says, no, you're not like that. You're real Christians and you really love God's people. And that is going to be core for your being able to move through this life and deal with all the stuff that's coming your way. We've been talking in weeks past about what's wrong with the world and that's sin. And you need, whether you know it or not, you and I need God's people. And we need the love of others. And then he says, You have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. We see this over and over and over in the Bible, that the word of God, which created the world out of nothing. We see it in John 1, that Jesus was the Logos, the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And over and over and over and over, we see the word of God is central to who we are. It's not just a book on a shelf. It's not just something that's added to our lives as an addendum It is the truth, and it's living. It's not like any other book. It's not like any other thing that we have ever, and if we don't see it that way, we're going to have problems. That's why we have problems. And Peter concludes in this text with this thought, Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. These self-conscious acts of faith and love, which are rooted in the Word of God, are our foundation. And without them, we have no bearings, we have no stability, and without them, we will fall, and without them, we have no discernment, and without them, we will be sucked into the vortex of the current culture, and we will be chewed up and swallowed whole. 
Now, this is the problem for every age, and it's no less of a problem for our own age. And so now is the time for us to know and remember who we are and why we're here and what we should do. During the Clinton administration, columnist William Raspberry wrote these words. Boy, we seem like we've come a long way downhill since then. He says, uh, we were talking about the Clinton campaign fundraising scandal, and frankly, I was a bit disappointed that my small class at Duke University was having trouble working up much moral outrage. The problem, I decided, was that they didn't know what was normal in the buying and selling of political access. Without some baseline, how could they decide what was unacceptably awful? Those of us who have been trying to figure out how Clinton could be in the midst of a fundraising scandal and simultaneously enjoying high popularity ratings have chalked it up to cynicism. The people, we argue, have become so used to politicians walking on the shady side of the street that they are no, no longer shocked by scandals that fall short of physical violence. Maybe it's moral ignorance. Maybe my generation, which does cling to notions of virtue, even as we violate them, has neglected to pass these ideas along, imagining that our children will somehow derive the principles they need to guide their lives. I don't know what it is. I only know that it scares me that so many people have become blasé about behavior that once would have been considered scandalous and that our children, so alert to the personal affront, seem incapable of moral indignation. Things have not gotten any better. And I thought about this. The left, apparently, has found its outrage, and apparently, we have lost ours. So where is our moral indignation? Raspberry hit upon the answer when he said there is no baseline. On what basis, on what authority would one be morally outraged or indignant? A moral compass is useless without a pole to point to. Consider the first principles of our culture. Individualistic. No one can tell me what to do. Pluralistic. Every view is equal to every other view and must be tolerated. Egalitarian. All people must have an equality of results and benefits. And so in summary, every individual must determine their own personal value system that is neither su superior nor inferior to any other person's value system, and we must all be guaranteed successful and happy lives. What's wrong with this picture? The one view that is excluded from these first principles of our culture is the idea of an absolute, transcendent authority. Such a view is anti-individualistic, anti-pluralistic, and anti-egalitarian. In short, it is intolerant. And the one thing that cannot be tolerated in our culture is intolerance. 
we exclude from the very beginning the one solution to our moral problems. It is like saying we need a standard by which to measure height and length, but no rulers are allowed. The foundation has been removed, so why do we expect the house to remain standing? And so people have come to despise any restraint on their behavior. That's why we're handing over blocks of cities to people to do what they want to do with them. But this is exactly what law, law, uh, law or ethics seeks to do. That is to define and to restrain evil. Thus our culture, including the political culture, does not tolerate the idea of commandments. Ethical relativism enables every ethical violation to be justified and explained away. What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. An affluent society seeks only its immediate gratification and pleasure, a hedonistic humanism, and thus we read in the history of Israel, when affluence turned them away from God, that God in judgment, how does God generally judge people? Well, in this case, he stripped them of their affluence and turned them back. And are we that night, we are naive if we think that God won't or can't do the same to us. I wonder what the Egyptians were thinking after the first two plagues. It'll be over soon, right? These frogs, we'll get them cleaned up and they'll be gone. Then we get back to we can, we can open Egypt back up. We can, we can get going again. Little did they know. So, perhaps there is yet hope for this culture in the form of judgment. Judgment is actually a blessing. It's God's way of saying, stop it. You're killing yourself. Moreover, those who on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder are driven uh, by an entitlement mentality, and thus the old and the young, the rich and the poor, black and white, etc., are all set against one another in our culture. Darwin's worldview, which is taught uh, every day in our public schools and universities, has taken root, and so we live in the world of survival of the fittest. Political ethics starts, and that's the question I'm really addressing here today, is how does, how does the Bible apply? Does it apply at all to the question of political ethics? What's right and what's wrong in the political world? Well, it starts with the people who are being ruled. Why would we expect ethical leadership to emerge from a corrupted people? Really? Our choices are Donald Trump and Joe Biden? That's what, we, that's what we have to pick from. Two self-serving, despicable men. And I'm not going to take the time to elaborate on that, but if you've got a couple of hours, I will be happy to do so. Corrupt leadership is a form of God's judgment on a corrupted people. When we abandon God, 
then he gives us what we said we want, and that is we want to determine good and evil for ourselves, and so he lets us vote. And as judgment begins with the house of God, so must true repentance. Political and cultural reform will come only when God's people are faithful to their covenant with him. And when then as salt and light, their influence will permeate the culture and redemption will ultimately expand to the political realm. Such reform is the result of a righteous people, not the cause of righteousness. So the title of the sermon today is Me or Thee. What is our ethical baseline? What is our standard? And the only two alternatives, and there are fundamentally only two, man's law, autonomy, or God's law, theonomy. We can subdivide the autonomous alternative into these two, the world's humanistic, pluralistic response and the church's humanistic and pluralistic response. These were the same choices in the Garden of Eden. Would man receive his ethical rules or his laws from the Word of God, or would he determine them for himself? Because without the Word of God, man is ethically blinded. I believe that we have entered a new and virulent phase of a pandemic that is far worse than COVID-19. John warned the Christians of his day, saying, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And I believe we are witnessing what could not have been imagined 20 years ago. And I can assure you that in another 20 years, a whole new set of unimaginable, unimaginables will have established themselves. Oh, that could never happen. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in my lifetime, is it? Hang on. Dostoevsky's dictum said, if God is dead, everything is permitted. With God ruled out of the universe as irrelevant, man places himself at the center, the measure of all things, and he becomes the basic ethical baseline And he believes so-called good reason can provide sufficient ethical standards to govern a good society. But where does he even get his notion of good? Good for whom? The majority? The individual? Why should one group of people determine what is good for any other group of people? Are ethics determined by consensus in a pluralistic society where there are a host of ethical perspectives? Wait, someone argues, there are many people who are, quote, moral, but who express no religious beliefs. Don't go thinking you need God or the Bible to determine what's moral. Everybody knows certain things are just wrong. And even if we did agree that everybody knows certain things are wrong, we still haven't answered the question of why anything is wrong. By the way, if Darwin was right, There is no such thing as right and wrong. Without an authoritative underpinning for that moral sense, the culture will continue to shift and decay. 
Rationalism has failed and will continue to fail because it can't provide a starting point for ethics or morality. As Dr. Van Til observed once, the unbeliever seeks to build in a void. Uh, uh, what he's saying is it's like trying to say, I'm going to build a house in, in the middle of thin air. There's no foundation. I'm just going to build it up here. All, the reason, all reasoning requires a starting point, a necessary presupposition, a major premise. Philosophy cannot provide this. It, it's fairly good at asking questions, but it never provides answers. This is why all autonomous approaches fail. There is no place to stand. Ethical relativism crumbles because, in the end, there is no fixed foundation to which it is relative. You know, if I, if I say, are you almost there? What's your next question? Almost where? Where are we going? I can't answer that question if I don't know where I'm going. Or if I say, how long is the trip? What trip? Where's the starting point? Where's the ending point? We can't answer that. And so there can be no ethical relativism because there's nothing to relate it to. There is no foundation. And political conservatism, if I ask right now, uh, and I'll just do it rhetorically here, are you a conservative or a liberal? I suspect we'd see most hands go up for being conservative. But I want to ask you a question this morning. What does that mean? I think we're asking the wrong questions. I want to know if you're a Christian. That's the, that's the real question. Maybe a better question is, which God? There's a host of gods to pick from. We don't, we don't just have Donald Trump and Joe Biden there. We've got a world of gods to pick from. Which one are you following? And R.L. Dabney wrote in 1887 uh, a statement. Some of you have heard me read before, but I'm going to read it. It's just so good where he talks about the problem with political conservatism. conservatism. And so many Christians have looked to political conservatives to rescue a corrupt political system. Yet political conservatism can't succeed for the same reason all other autonomous ethical systems fail. It also has no ethical baseline. It has no ultimate character or principle. It is a reactionary movement with no principled object objectives to drive it. And so Dabney says this, referring to the conservative political party of his day, this is a party that never conserves anything. Its history has been that it demurs in each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable amount of growling, but always acquiesces at last in the innovation. What was the resisted novelty of yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. It is now conservative only in affecting to resist the next innovation, which will tomorrow be forced upon its timidity and will be succeeded by some third revolution to be denounced and then adopted in its turn. American conservatism is mere... I love this statement. 
American conservatism is merely the shadow that follows radicalism as it moves forward toward perdition, toward hell. It remains behind it, but never retards it, and always advances near its leader. The pretended salt hath utterly lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? Its impotency is not hard indeed to explain. It is worthless because it is the conservatism of expediency only and not of sturdy principle. It intends to risk nothing serious for the sake of the truth and has no idea of being guilty of the folly of martyrdom. It always, when about to enter a protest, very blandly informs the wild beast whose path it essays to stop that, quote, its bark is worse than its bite, and that it only means to save its manners by enacting its decent role of resistance, the only practical purpose which it now serves in American politics is to give enough exercise to radicalism to keep it in shape and to prevent it from becoming pursy and lazy, from having nothing to whip. We're worried about the left leading us into a socialist society. Folks, we already are a socialist society. We've been on that path for a long time. Back to today's point. We have a lot, uh, we have to look closely to see the difference in the church, if any, between the church and the world. They're both pluralistic in their political views. They both think the political realm is religiously neutral. They both think men are capable, apart from God, to establish an ethical law order. And they both are antinomian in their attitude, that is, anti-law. How many people go to church to receive directives, that is, laws, for how to live their lives? Church has become a place of entertainment, a place to make people feel good, a place of compromise. And when a church changes its doctrine and practice in order to keep in step with the times, it has lost its value and its saltiness. God's law is public enemy number one in many evangelical churches. Historian Paul Johnson writes, quote, In the last generation, with public Christianity in headlong retreat, we have caught our first distant view of a de-Christianized world, and it is not encouraging. Thus saith the Lord has been replaced with a touchy-feely, soft, feminine, existential, wimpy religion that is impotent, to affect any moral change because it too has lost its ethical baseline. And when the church in her temptation to be relevant to the world succumbs to this temptation, then our ship has lost its moorings and is now adrift. Feminist Ann Douglas, in her book titled The Feminization of American Culture, which I highly recommend, she's not a Christian, She understands what's going on. She observed that the doctrine of Calvinistic theology in the churches, which provided the, quote, preservative for all virtues, even those of gentleness and generosity, was supplanted by a weak sentimentalism that could not provide the foundation for true virtue. She goes on to say that, quote, adult politics have succumbed 
to infantile piety, ecclesia to a nursery. Masculinity is vanquished in the congregation and even more significantly in the pulpit. If we had time, we could develop various ways that the church has manifested this attitude of antinomianism, such as liberalism's arbitrary attempt to hang on to the morality of Scripture while denying its authority and its infallibility, and fundamentalism's dispensational retreat into the parenthesis of individualistic morals and socio-political impotence. Neo-Orthodoxy's reduction of thus saith the Lord to it seems to me. Dr. Greg Bonson observed, and the church has joined hands with the Enlightenment in, the emancipating, in emancipating society and politics from explicit biblical direction. The voices from both the church and the state have merged in repudiating God's law as a criterion for personal and civil morality. And this leaves us with the only other alternative. Again, Bonson wrote, and the other alternative is God's law. The source of moral authority and law within a society will either be theistic or political, and when the former is repudiated, the latter allows for no, for of no, no logical barrier to tyranny. If there is no transcendent, unchanging, authoritative, ethical standard to which we are all accountable, then it is simply every man for himself. There are no neutral zones in God's universe, including the political arena. The word of the Lord, the King of kings, is the sole, supreme, and unchangeable standard, the baseline for, all, for the attitude and actions of all men in all times and in all places and in every area of life. That is our foundation. Our obligation to keep God's commands can't be judged by any extra scriptural standard, such as whether specific requirements, when, specific, when properly interpreted, are congenial to past traditions or modern feelings and practices. It's the creature's obligation to conform to the standards of the Creator, whether he thinks they're reasonable or not. Eve didn't think the prohibition from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was reasonable. Professor John Murray said it was a fatal error, quote, if it is thought that the Christian revelation, the Bible, does not come to the civil authority with a demand for obedience to its direction and precept as stringent and inescapable as it does to the individual, to the family, and to the church. Christ is king of all the earthly kings. He who is the blessed and, and only potentate the King of kings and Lord of lords. John tells us that Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Our prayer is that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the kings of the earth, according to Psalm 2, are to submit to Christ. The Bible teaches that political rulers are morally obligated to enforce the laws of God found throughout Scripture 
Christian involvement in politics requires the recognition of God's transcendent, absolute, revealed law as the standard by which to judge all social codes and political policies. Jesus is not politically correct. He doesn't meet the current standard. And if you're going to stand with Jesus, you're going to be opposed. William Symington, in his book, Messiah the Prince, said this, It is the duty of nations, as subjects of Christ, to take his law as their rule. They are apt to think enough that they take as their their standard of legislation and, and administration human reason, natural conscience, public opinion, or political expediency, None of these, however, or indeed all of them together, can supply a sufficient guide in affairs of the state. As the Apostle Paul affirmed that one of the proper uses of the law is the restraint of criminal behavior, Jesus endorsed the penal sanctions of the Old Testament law, condemning those who would make them void by their human traditions. Paul upheld the penal standards of the Mosaic law, And the author of Hebrews clearly indicates that the New Testament perspective on those laws was that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense. I want to thank you for your patience today. I know I've gone longer than usual, but I wanted to fit the whole package in here, and so give me a couple more minutes, just two more minutes, and I'll wrap this up. Maybe not that long. Those who don't favor taking God's law as the ultimate standard for political ethics and public justice will be forced to submit to some other criteria. Why are you Christians keep cramming the Bible down our throats? Somebody is going to cram something down somebody's throat. That's why we have a conflict. They can't all be right. The civil magistrate can't function without some standard of good and evil, some baseline, And if that standard is not the authoritative, infallible law of God, then it will be some other form of expression of the law of men, autonomy, self-law. Men must be ruled in their civil and personal affairs by the law of God, or else they will be ruled by tyrants or collapse into social anarchy and degeneracy. But they will never be ruled by the law of God unless, and this is the really maybe the most important point of this sermon here, they will never be ruled by the law of God. Our world will never be ruled by the law of God unless and until they receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's why the gospel was sent to the world, the whole world. That's what we're called to. That's our mission. That's our platform. Until they hear the good news of the forgiveness of sins and until they are reconciled to God and until they are made one with all of God's people from every tribe, every race, there's our solution to the racial problem. It's the solution to every problem. And until they have new hearts of flesh to replace hearts of stone... We're going to continue with this mess. And so I, I, I do close with this uh, question. When is the last time you shared that good news with someone? You sat down and talked to someone. 
Told them what they needed to hear. Told them about Christ. Told them what Christ has done for you. We will not change the world with guns. We will not change the world with protest. And we will not change the world with internet exchanges. We will change the world when we show them and tell them of the love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we seem to be increasingly surrounded by a loveless world because we live in an increasingly lawless age. Your word is despised and disregarded, and we pray first that your word would be established in us and that it would abide in us. May we be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And second, we pray that you would make your church the pillar and ground of the truth, unwavering in our commitment to the authority and power of your holy word. And third, we pray that you would make us bold to proclaim that word, which is the word of life, to a lost and dying world. And finally, we pray that your word will not return to you void, but rather have it accomplish what you please, so that it shall prosper in the thing for which you sent it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read our text one more time from 1 Peter 1, 22-25. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Do you find yourself indignant over other people's sins, but never your own? Are you easily offended but also very easily hurt by how others allegedly treat you? If so, then look for a corrupt heart. According to our text today, only a pure heart can fervently love the brethren. Only a pure heart can forgive others. A pure heart knows what it is to be forgiven and cleansed. A pure heart is the recipient of grace, God's ill-deserved favor. Therefore, a pure heart is eager to extend that same grace to others, especially to those in their families and to fellow church members and to those who are of the household of faith and to those even our neighbors who are outside the church. This is the table of communion. And as we receive and commune, consume the body and blood of Christ, we declare that His life is our life. But more than that, we also declare that we are unified, have communion as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one. So if that is what you believe, if that is what you're practicing, then I invite you to this glorious table, the table of grace, to commune with Him and with sincere love for one another.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table. Thank you now for this bread, the body of Christ that was broken for us. And as we now consume this, as we eat this, we by faith receive it as a gift from you to nourish us in Christ and to remind us of who we are in Christ and what our obligations are in Christ to one another and to you and to the world. So Lord, grant us a a humble spirit and a pure heart that we might receive these gifts as they were intended. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The body broken. And now, O Lord, teach us to come to you when our spirits are depressed, and when we grow weary or anxious, draw us to yourself. For you are the only one who can fix our hearts and furnish us with a ballast to render us steadfast. Without your grace to uphold us, we are but wind. May we be in union with you who does not move, nor is changed by time or circumstances, but who sits in the heavens and moves all things by your powerful hand according to your infinite skill. While we have you as our God, we have your immutability for our advantage. The nearer we come to you, the more stability we will have in ourselves. The further from you, the more liable we are to change. Bless us now on this Lord's Day. Restore us, renew us as we rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen.